If you'd stand for the reading of God's word, we're going to continue in this four-part series on the symbols of Christ. So we're going to read from John chapter 6, starting in verse 48. Jesus, speaking to the multitude, said this, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood is the one that lives in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. This is God's word. You can be seated. So as we mentioned last week, we're doing a four-part series kind of leading up to Easter. And I've found just in my own life that I need my heart to be prepared for celebration of resurrection. Uh, Resurrection is the the linchpin of the Christian faith. Um, If Jesus died without the resurrection, his death is meaningless. We have a crucified, buried, dead Messiah, and we have no hope. But the resurrection is all about the hope we have, um, both in this life and the life to come, that now, because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, everything has meaning and purpose. And, and the New Testament is filled with this message that, that what Jesus did there when he resurrected is to infuse every part of our life. We are to live lives of resurrection, lives of hope. And so I have found for myself over the years that I need to kind of take time aside to really think through what it means to live in Christ and to live that resurrection life. And so I found that it's beneficial just to prepare my heart before Easter. So that's what we're doing together. Um, And we're looking at the symbols of Christ. Last week we looked at the water. Today we'll look at the meal. Next week the cross and then the grave. Now, I mentioned last week symbols may not have a whole lot of cultural relevance to us, but the Bible is filled with symbols, with metaphor and imagery, with signs. Um, Yahweh is described as a rock. Um, we talk about God's name, his character, who he is, being uh, like a strong military tower that you can run into and, and find safety and security. Um, the Bible talks about if we wait and put our hope in Yahweh, we'll be like eagles that renew their strength and can soar on the winds. And the Bible uses imagery like this over and over and over again. Jesus talks about being the vine and about us abiding in him, being like branches that are connected to the vine. And this is the only way that we can bear fruit, right? And so the Bible uses all of this imagery to stir up um, 
a deeper connection for us. You know, poetry works like this. Somebody can tell you um, the sky is blue or, you know, the poet will tell you, you know, it was, um, you know, like the color of her eyes. You know, it'll take you like on this journey so that you experience um, this sky in, in such an emotional, connective way. And this is what the Bible often does with, with metaphor and with imagery, with signs. It doesn't just want us to be told something, but it wants us to experience God. It wants us to experience his presence. It wants us to journey with God. And I, I mentioned this last week, but C.S. Lewis, in one of his essays, he talked about how when God created the world and humans in it, to relate to us, God doesn't, you know, try to find pieces of creation and say, like, okay, well, you know, I guess I'm like the father, uh, and so this is how maybe you could relate to me. I'm like a father, you know, and God's just trying to, like, kind of work with what's already there. But C.S. Lewis said that God actually created the world in a, such a way that he can relate to us. And so we have fathers because this is what God is like. We have mothers because this is also what God is like. He is tender and caring. We have the farmer because this is a great picture of what following God is like. It is seasons of working and tilling hard ground, of planting a seed and waiting and waiting and wondering if it's ever going to bear fruit. And then sure enough, it does. And then it's about reaping a harvest. See, God has created the world in such a way as to relate to us, to speak to us. And I think that God, through these metaphors, symbols, and signs, he wants to change the way that we look at the world. If you think about it, most of our day is not spent uh, with our, you know, our noses in the Bible. And I think sometimes we have a misunderstanding of what true spirituality is. The psalmist talks about abiding in the law of the Lord, but I don't think for a moment he is talking about reading the Bible from the break of day till the sun goes down. I went to a Bible college right out of, um, well, a year after high school. And I remember back in those days, we had this understanding that spirituality was worshiping God all night. Spirituality was staying up into the late hours of the morning praying. Spirituality was <clears throat> spending all your time reading. And it had little to do with interpersonal relationships. It had little to do with the life of the family. That was almost seemed like, well, you chose second best by having a wife and a family. But this is true spirituality, to, to spend all your time worshiping God, you know, with electric guitars and, you know, and the lights dim. Why are the lights down? Actually, can somebody turn on the lights? Max, can you turn on the lights? <clears throat> yeah, they're right. Yeah, there you go. Wonderful. A little better, huh? Right now it's like hazy in here, um, but we ha- we have this. I think just a really terrible misunderstanding that this is what spirituality was, and it totally divorces our, uh, us from the physical world around us and so much of what human life is about. Human life is about relationship. It is about eating and drinking and working and sleeping and interpersonal relationships and, and, you know, so on and so forth. And unfortunately, we can have a spirituality that relates to none of that. But that is not the spirituality of the Bible. See, God, in, in his word, he speaks to us through the mountains. 
He speaks to us through the heavens. He speaks to us through the beauty of the field. He speaks to us through the roaring of the sea. He speaks to us through the might of the creatures that he's created. All of these speak of the power, of the majesty, of the personal, the personableness of God. And I believe that God wants to speak to us in this way. You know, the the biblical writers, they saw a world that was alive with the presence of God, a world shouting to them about his glory and his presence among them. And so we also live in that same world where God wants to use these physical things to relate to us and to minister to our souls. And he's calling to us in them. They're they're prophetic whispers so that when we're not reading our Bible, maybe we're making our commute to work, God still wants to speak to us as we look at, you know... The, the grass on the side of the road. I mean, think about just like the, the California poppies that grow up, right? They are so beautiful. And maybe you guys know like what's going on in Southern California. There's a super bloom and like all these people are getting out of their cars on the side of the road and they've actually had to clamp down on this because like people are causing traffic jams and all this kind of stuff. But why do they do that? Because the grass withers and the flower fades. This beauty is a passing moment, and then it will be gone. And so everyone wants to capture that. And the psalmist talks about that. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. What an incredible way that God can speak to us, just even in our commute to work. The ways that he wants to tell us his story. He wants to show and remind us of his promises to bring deeper understanding and deeper connection to the story of God and to incite deeper trust, deeper hope, and deeper love for God. So I believe that that's what God wants to do. And so that's why we're taking this time just to kind of look at some of these symbols that we have in the Bible. I think God wants to speak to us in the ordinary everyday imagery and symbols that are all around us because the ordinary is where real life is happening and he wants to use our the the creation and our daily rhythms in it to bring about spiritual formation Uh, i recommended this book last week a book called the liturgy of the ordinary but the writer says uh, this the kind of spiritual life and disciplines needed to sustain the christian life are quiet repetitive and ordinary. They are the stuff of every day, the, the mundane, the, the rhythms of life, the getting up, the making your bed, the making your coffee, the sitting down for breakfast, the going to work, the interacting with employer and employees. These are the rhythms that God wants to speak to us in. So this morning, we're going to talk about eating and drinking. And what I want to do is I want to change the way we think about this as believers. I want to change the way you consider uh, what a meal is and what it's for. So first we're going to talk about a meal. Then we're going to talk about the meal. And then we're going to talk about the last meal. Is that cool? Yeah. I know. Those are really good points, huh? A meal, the meal, the last meal. And then by the time I'm like meal, 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 what is this word, you know? You know how you do that. So, okay, a meal. Here we go. So, obviously, both eating and drinking is something that is absolutely essential to life. We talked a little bit about water last week and how it affects our life. It's something so common that I think we often don't see any significance behind it. It has no deep meaning or significance. Maybe you grew up in a home where... Everyone would kind of fend for themselves. Maybe you have conflicting schedules. 
you know, you were a latchkey kid, something like that, right? And so you rarely sat down as a family for a meal together and communed or connected in any significant way. Maybe you were so disconnected as a family, and then your parents made you sit down for a family meal, but it felt more like lunch at school. You know what I mean? Like, there's really no connectivity, and you're, like, forcing conversation, and it's awkward, and you're wondering why we're trying to do this. But it lacked, it, it lacked a family tradition. It lacked any sacredness to it. And for others of you, the table was a place to connect and be family. It was a place to talk through deep and personal things. Now, it seems to me, just in thinking about eating and drinking, sitting down for a meal, it, it seems in our culture today, people seem to generally use food in two ways. And it's either as a necessary evil, you have to eat to stay alive. Food is fuel, so it doesn't really matter what you put into your body. You just scarf it down so you can get on to the important stuff. Some of you, you treat food like that. And then, of course, there is the other side, right, where we have turned it into a kind of decadent Epicurean feast where it's all about tantalizing the senses. And this happens, like, primarily, I think, in this uh, region of the earth. This is a foodie culture. We're all about, you know, great drink, great food. Uh, you know, like, where else in the world can you go and pay this exuberant amount for tapas and walk away starving after spending $150 for two people on a meal? It was amazing. It was amazing. Let's go to Taco Bell. You know, that's what everybody does. But it's, it's all about tantalizing the senses, and it's trying to quench an insatiable hunger and an insatiable thirst. Uh, the other day, Grace, my wife, she made a comment just about this. I can't remember what we were talking about. But she was just like, it's so funny how we're constantly trying to find more flavor, new taste, and new experience. It never ends. We're, and, and maybe if you had some experience, you're trying to recreate it. You're after that. It's like the white whale, you know, of Moby Dick, right? Like, you, you can't ever get to it. And my wife has actually often reminded me, Char, this doesn't have to be the best meal you've ever had. I'll stand in front of the fridge for like 20 minutes, you know, just like staring. <laughs> what kind of burrito can I make? And how can I blow my mind with it, right? And she, always, she often tells me, you will eat again. <laughs> it's like, okay, yeah, you're right, I will. Okay, yeah, just eat. So... The problem with both of these, and of course they're extremes, right? They're caricatures. But the problem with both of these views is that they miss the deep meaning and significance behind the sacredness of meal, behind the sacredness of eating. Now, in the ancient Near East, which we've been talking a lot in our year biblical, in our year biblical literacy, in the ancient Near East, a meal was never just a meal. It's interesting. It, was a time, it wasn't simply a time to ingest food or quench thirst, or just about, you know, the debaucherous feasting like I was talking about earlier. A meal was about kinship. It was about connecting as a family. It was about friendship and inviting people into deep intimacy. It was about hospitality. Um, it, of course, meals were used to celebrate covenant and promise. You think about this, it's significant that in the scripture, the first meal ever mentioned being prepared and eaten is a meal between Abraham and Yahweh. Now, there, there's another mention, you know, of other people just like, and they ate. Uh, or there's a mention of Abraham's servants eating. But, like, there's, there's not a mention of a meal until it's Abraham and Yahweh. Abraham cooks Yahweh 
a meal, and, and he serves him. It's an act of hospitality. This comes from the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery. It says, in the Near East culture, meals themselves, the food served, the manner in which it was done, and by whom, carried socially significant coded communication. The more formal the meal, the more loaded the messages. The messages had to do with honor, social rank in the family and community, belonging, purity, and holiness. Among God's chosen people, Israel, meals became ways of experiencing and enjoying God's presence and provision. So that's kind of just the idea that we get from the Bible about what a meal is and the significance that's behind it. Now, of course, in the Bible, people ate meals just like we do, but even at those meals, they weren't just eating food. Even at an ordinary meal, the Jews believed that God was present. He was expected, awaited, and enjoyed. All meals were sacred because Yahweh had provided them from his very hand. This was a place, a time to connect with and commune with God, to worship him. And of course, then there were social meals like weddings and harvest parties. And then there were national meals and festivals that were given to Israel as ways to commemorate their national identity and story. And of course, this is the way that we actually see the meal introduced to Israel into their cultural identity. And I was thinking about this as we were doing, um, I can't remember what study we were doing, but I was I think it was when we were talking about the law and how it applies to Israel and it's about their identity. But think about this. Before God ever gives Israel commands, laws, diet, any of these things, before that, when they're still in Egypt, he gives them this sacred meal to commemorate. And this is the first thing that Israel is to incorporate into their cultural identity is this meal. Before the Ten Commandments, before Sinai, before any of this, God says, remember this. Remember this powerful deliverance from slavery by practicing this dinner meal together. And he he wants this to be something that they come back to again and again and again. I mean, think about that. God gives Israel one of the most common, earthy, human ways to remember their story, a meal. Make this a part of your liturgy, Israel, to remember your deliverance from slavery. So in Exodus 13, 8, God tells Moses, you know, that this meal and and what it's supposed to be like, and we don't get all the details here, but there's supposed to be a lamb that is in their house for a number of days, and it's a spotless male lamb, and it's supposed to be like a pet to them. And then on the day of the meal, of the, the Passover meal, they're to slaughter that lamb, and they're supposed to cook it in such a way, they're supposed to eat all of it, and anything that's left, they're supposed to burn it so that it is completely consumed. Along with this meal is unleavened bread, And this speaks of Israel, they're going to run out of Egypt that night, so they don't have time for their dough to rise, so there's no yeast in it. 
right? So they're supposed to eat this unleavened bread. There's also supposed to be bitter herbs that are included in this meal, and it's supposed to be a reminder of the bitterness and harshness of slavery. And then, of course, there's wine at this meal as well, as, uh, among other things. But as God is talking to Moses about this meal and the significance of, of what it is, it, he says this is a call to remember. Now, in the Bible, a call to remember, especially when tied to a covenant sign or ceremony, is not just, okay, remember, like, okay, everybody, let's remember that this is from the Lord right now. God, thank you for this food. It comes from you. Amen. That's not the idea behind it. We've kind of made remembering like a, like, I don't know, like a little bump in the road. Like, okay, there we go. We remembered. Now we move on. In that culture, to remember was a vibrant, powerful, and participatory concept where you would recalibrate your life according to what's being remembered. You would go back and say, how have I gotten off track? How have I lost the story? How have I forgotten who I am? And you would come back to this moment. God says to Israel, this is what this meal is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a coming home, a returning back to who you are. I love this. God says, when you sit down to eat this meal and your children ask you, what does this mean? He says, tell them it is because of what the Lord did for me. Listen to how personal this is. Now, sometimes we do this with salvation and Christianity. We can, we can go to two extremes, right? We make it so individualistic that nobody can judge me but God. It's all about my personal relationship with God and, you know, my private little intimacy with Jesus. Nobody can touch that. I meet him in the secret place in my closet. Like, whatever. Who, who even knows what that is? Like, we just kind of choose your own adventure Christianity. And then there's the other extreme where it's only corporate. God can only be found in the presence of his people, and you have to connect with the church in order to meet with God. And these are two extremes, and I, but I love this, is that this is a, a corporate salvation of the nation of Israel, but God makes it personal. It's both and. And so as they're celebrating this meal about being delivered from slavery, God says, you tell your children personally what this means to you. Tell them what the Lord did for you. So this meal is to be a liturgical act of telling themselves and their family the story of God. And finding again their identity in it. Coming home. Returning back through this story. What he did for me, I, again, I love that. God makes it so personal. Remember that um, Psalm 107. We'll actually get there in like a week, right? We're reading a psalm a day through the year of biblical literacy. Psalm 107, verses 2 through 3 say this. Let those that the Lord has redeemed tell their story. Those that he redeemed from the hand of the enemy. Those he gathered from different lands from east and west, from north and south. Let those that God has redeemed tell their story. So the Passover meal in particular becomes an incredible memorial to train Israel not to forget where they came from. 
their salvation from slavery, who their God is, and now who they are in light of his rescue, their, their newborn or newfound freedom under Yahweh, it becomes the story that they tell themselves, the narrative that they live by. And that's what this meal is about for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of years. Israel practices this meal and tells one another their story to recalibrate their identity as a way to go home. Now, once again, Jesus comes on the scene and he radically reinterprets the meaning of the meal and shows what it always pointed to, the deeper, greater significance of it. And this is where we come to the last meal. So many of us are familiar with the Eucharist, right? Or I think evangelicals, we tend to call it communion, more than we do the Eucharist. But it's the bread and the cup that Jesus instituted at the last meal. And he does this and uh, institutes it and gives it to us as a Christian sacrament. There are only two Christian sacraments. There are baptism and this meal, the Eucharist. Now, Jesus, while he and his disciples are celebrating the Passover, he takes the unleavened bread of this meal which was about purging sin from your life, which was a reminder of the haste in which God was going to deliver them out of slavery in Egypt. And Jesus tells us something so different about this bread. He breaks it and says, this bread is a symbol of my body. A body without the leaven of sin, a body that has not been permeated by sin and all of its consequences and all of its breakdown. No, this is a perfect, sinless body that has been broken for you. It says, take every one of you, eat this. And then likewise, Jesus takes a cup of wine. And in, in the Passover meal, I think there were a total of I can't remember if there are four or five cups of wine that the Jews would pass. And these all had significance and meaning. And, 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 and the last one, of course, is about this supper that we will eat in the presence of God, in the kingdom of God. It's about this eschatological meal that we will eat. But when it comes to the fourth cup, Jesus takes it and he reinterprets the meaning of it and says, this is a symbol of my blood that will be poured out for the sins of many. And he says this, this is the ratification of the new covenant. Drink of it, all of you, and do this in remembrance of me. Now, it's interesting, when Moses brings in the old covenant. You remember, he sprinkled the people with the blood of the spotless lamb. And he says these words, this is the ratification of the covenant with Yahweh. They're sprinkled with the blood. Jesus is copying, as it were, or following in, in line with Moses, and he takes this cup, symbolizes his blood, and says, likewise, this 
is the blood of the new covenant. A symbol of my blood that will be poured out for the sins of many. Take it, all of you. And of course, do this in remembrance of me. Remember that word, remembering in the biblical sense had to do with recalibrating. It had to do with coming back, coming home. Now, Matthew, Mark, Luke all record the Last Supper. But Luke adds a little piece that has always just stood out to me with such... Such power. So as Jesus begins this meal, he introduces it by saying this to his disciples. With fervent desire have I desired to eat this meal with you before I suffer. And then he goes on to explain, as we just did, the significance of this meal. Passover meal, particularly the bread and the cup. They symbolize him and his life-giving sacrifice for the, for the world. It is this meal, the bread and the cup and what they signify, that will bring unprecedented intimacy and friendship with God. And Jesus says he fervently desires or has fervently desired. He has longed for and looked forward to this meal and all of the significance that is wrapped up into it. And I think what Jesus is saying to his disciples and I think what Jesus is saying to us is his desire to be with us. His desire to be in close friendship and intimacy with us. Now, you're like, oh, that is like, I don't even know where you're getting this. Okay, well, that's fine. Jesus in John 6, 53 through 56. So, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all have the Last Supper. Yet, none of them really explain what is behind this. I mean, like Jesus talks about the symbols of his body and his blood, but like what does this do for the Christian? None of those guys explain this. You have to go to John's gospel, and it's not even the Last Supper. It's actually in John chapter 6, where Jesus tells us what this body and what this blood is actually going to do for his people. Listen to this. Jesus said to them, we read this earlier, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Here it is. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Or some of your translations use the word abide. The one who does this is truly at home with me. What is home to us? Home is a place where you kick off your shoes, you take off your socks, 
and you just kick back. It's the place where you are most vulnerable, you are most comfortable. The other day I was actually at a restaurant and somebody took off their shoes and it was like, oh my gosh, put those back on. Like we're trying to eat here, you know? But, but like you do that in your home, it's like, it's your house, you do whatever you want. You want stinky feet and dinner at the same time? That is your prerogative? Go ahead, right? You just be you. Just be totally at home. Be authentic, vulnerable, because this is home. This Eucharistic meal, the last meal, is Jesus' offer to us of permanent, ongoing, at-homeness with him. In church, he invites us to dine often at this table and to eat this meal with him. I love this. This comes from Frederick Bruner. He wrote a um, commentary on the Gospel of John, but he says, the sacraments are not a second way of salvation. They are simply Jesus' one way of salvation that has been scaled down, physicalized, individualized, simplified, and concretized from heart to hands, from soul to body, from group to individual. He, Jesus, knew that we need not only spiritual things, but also physical things in order to grasp him more easily and to come to him more specifically. And this is what the Eucharistic meal is all about. Yes, it is about the broken body of Jesus for us. Yes, it is about his shed blood. But what is the purpose? So that we might be with him. So that we might commune with him and so that we might come home. That's the idea behind this. It is the word becoming flesh again and again. It is the most most earthy way that the heavenly Lord wants to be with us. It's all about communing with our God. It's about making our home with him and him with us. So through this meal and what it symbolizes, the tearing of Jesus' flesh, the breaking of bread, the shedding of his blood symbolized in the cup, We talked about this last week. The judgment of God, like in the book of Exodus, will pass over God's people and the way to God's presence will be cleared. As we said last week, again, Jesus' sacrifice is what makes way for the Spirit to come upon humanity. The Spirit will give in and Jesus will abide with us and us with him in an unprecedented way. We will experience now the presence and provision of God his hospitality. It's, it's like what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 31, that the days are coming. They're not like the covenant that God made with the Israelites in the days of Moses when he took them out of slavery in Egypt. No, this is a new covenant, God says, where I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. This, 
meal is a picture of that new work that God wants to do where now his spirit comes and abides with us and us with him. And it's interesting that, of course, in John, right, where we would expect to find the, the Eucharistic meal and the Passover meal that Jesus' teaching is all about who? It's all about the Holy Spirit. It's all about the comforter. It's all about the one who will abide with us. And it's all about Jesus forever being with us in a whole new way. And I believe that this is what this meal is really about. It's about being at home with God. And then like the Israelites, it's a way for us to recalibrate. It's a way for us to go home often. Again and again. So let me say this. We're basically done here. Let me just close up with this, though. This meal is not to be taken hastily. It's not to be taken casually. It is not to be scarfed down, but it is to be savored. And like Paul the Apostle says, it's to be taken in a worthy manner as we reflect on God's invitation to make our home in him. His invitation to come and sit at his table and be his intimate friend. To receive his hospitality that he offers us through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. Again, Jesus says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Jesus tells us that this is the way that we settle into our home with him, by regularly dining at this table. So our weekly gatherings, and you know, we do communion every week here at Refuge, except for Easter Sunday, because it seems like, yeah, anyway, you can get, you can get that one on your own. So but we do it every week, and we see this as a, a week-to-week offer from God to reorient ourselves around the work of Jesus. It's a way to come home. It's a way to recalibrate our lives. And so, church, let the Lord's table, let this meal, this weekly offering, let it do that for you. It's so easy to fall into just like, oh yeah, this is just what we do. It's a Christian option that we do. We can take of the bread and the cup and we can remember. But are we recalibrating? Is it an altar call for our lives to come back to Jesus, to find our home in him, to make our identity with him, to have his story be our story? to trust again in his death for us, that it paid for our sin, that we have been cleansed from all righteousness. And now we have been made alive to God like we talked about last week. Now to walk in the newness of life, to continue Jesus' mission, to display the kingdom through our lives until he comes again. This meal is the opportunity or invitation to do that. Making Jesus the center of our universe, making him our home, making him and his mission our sole identity. So, church, use 
this meal as a liturgy. The kind of spiritual life and disciplines needed to sustain the Christian life are quiet, repetitive, and ordinary. I mean, what if we came to church excited? I mean, have you ever come to church excited about Eucharist? Like, I know it's grape juice, right? And it's like, it's kind of funny. Like, we've got these tiny little cups and grape juice, and I think it's the only place that I ever drink grape juice. I have a few friends that will just pour themselves a big old glass of grape juice and just, I'm like, okay, all right. So I'm not talking about looking forward to it in that way, like the tantalizing of the senses and the way that we talk about, you know, Sonoma County way that we view food. But have you ever come to church excited about this opportunity to be recalibrated? Have you ever come to church so burdened down with guilt and shame, that you're waiting for the words. This body has been broken for you. This blood has been shed for your cleansing. This is for you. We need those words spoken over us. We need that reminder that the body of Jesus was crushed for us so that we could be brought out of slavery, so we could be brought out of death. We need that reminder that the blood of Jesus was shed for us. Jesus bled for us, and he washed us from our sins so we could be pure and righteous and holy before God. We need this reminder. We need this word spoken over us. We need to be invited to the table. Church, use this meal as a liturgy. Take God's invitation. Apply it to your life. Take that bread with faith that Jesus' body actually has been broken for you. This is what Yahweh did for me. I was a slave in Egypt. This is what he did for me. So what if we did that? What if we made this just a part of our liturgy? I know it's a part of our service already, but what if this was an opportunity for us to come home? What if we slowed down and began to use these physical acts and rhythms of our everyday life as ways to connect and reconnect to God? What if you used one meal each day as an opportunity to recalibrate your body, soul, and spirit to the Lord. What if we did that? Just think about all the rhythms that we do. You know, you go to the bathroom, you pull out your Instagram, right? It's like, it's your liturgy. It is. Because the habits that you're practicing, they're making you into the person that you are becoming. And we're Jesus people. We're kingdom of God people. And what if we actually, like this book isn't just options about what you could do with your life. This is a story to ingest and to make your own. 
to be brought into the story of God. So what if we, like Israel, took that opportunity in the middle of our day? Maybe it's for you, it's breakfast. I know for our family, that's what it is. It's breakfast. We sit down and we talk about what God has done for us. We tell our children. It's our time to do morning devotions together. But like the Israelites, we use it to tell one another our Passover story, to tell what the Lord did for us. And it can be an incredible memorial to train us not to forget the goodness and kindness of the Lord in saving us, to remind us of our slavery to sin and now our freedom in God, to remind us of who we are and why we are living and breathing at this moment. What if we used the Eucharist? What if we used our daily meal as a reminder not only of our sin being atoned for, but deeper than that, of God's desire to be our intimate friend and for us to make our home in him, to settle into him, to find all our delight, our hope, our comfort, to find our peace and our desires in him. Think about that passage in Scripture where Peter says, Casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. We have an opportunity, church, every single day to create rhythms in our life, opportunities, because this world it just throws things at us that we are so unprepared for physically, emotionally, spiritually. We can't handle them. And God as our shepherd, God as, our, as a good father, he says, I would like to carry this for you. Will you let me carry this? And Peter, a faithful apostle, he reminds us, cast all your cares on him for he cares for you. We can use the meal in this way, an opportunity to cast our cares upon our father to invite him into the burdens of our day. Or like Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Take my burden, seek my kingdom, and I will actually take all care of all of this for you. What an opportunity. What an incredible offer. And so the meal can be used, and of course the Eucharist meal is used in this way, a way to allow God to be our intimate friend, to be our companion upon the road of life, to make our home in him, again, to receive his comfort, to receive his peace. And so church, it's a very simple sermon. Use this meal. Use a meal each day I challenge you to bring you home to commune with the Father, to delight in the Son, and to walk in the Spirit. God is giving us these opportunities in the everyday rhythms to make our home in Him, to find our peace in Him. Lord, We thank you, God, that you have given us a world alive with your glory.
with your goodness, with witnesses of your salvation of grace. Lord, would we not miss these prophetic moments Lord we're such a busy people but it's not Lord it's because we're choosing to be we're choosing to give into the narrative of our culture we're choosing to be conformed to the way everyone else does it rather than being transformed by your word that renews our minds. Lord, would we choose to stop, to slow down, and to observe the sacredness of life in each and every opportunity. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would work in our hearts and minds or that we would create our own liturgies. Those sacred moments, Lord, where we can stop, we can commune with you, Lord, we will cast our cares upon you, Lord, we will take afresh and anew your offer of salvation, of forgiveness, of rescue, of home and security. Lord, would we make those liturgies of our life, Lord, so that we can sustain the rigorous life of following Jesus in this fast-paced, crazy culture. Lord, so that we might be faithful to the end, even as you were faithful and are faithful, Lord Jesus. So we commit ourselves to you. And we pray, Lord, now as we remember you, as we take the bread and the cup together, Lord, we pray, God, Lord, that this would be a sacred moment for us. Lord, that some of us would confess those sins that have been weighing on us. Lord, that some of us would take again your offer of grace and forgiveness even though we know we don't deserve it. We take it by faith. Lord, with others of us, Lord, take this opportunity to recalibrate. Lord, we have been living for ourselves under the delusion that we belong to ourselves, that our lives are ours to create and to define. Lord, we cast that down this morning and we run into the Father's arms. Lord, we come home. And Lord, for others of us, Lord, we have been holding bitterness and anger against others. We pray, Lord, this morning that that would be nailed to the cross. And Lord, we would go and we would make reconciliation with our brother or our sister. And Lord, that every facet of our lives would be aligned with the sacrificial death of Jesus for us. And Lord, then would we walk in this newness of life, we pray.